You're listening to Iran's Weekly Wire. I'm Roland Elliott Brown. More than any other U.S. president, Jimmy Carter's years in office were defined by his dealings with Iran. The 1979 Iranian Revolution took him, like everyone else, by surprise. Many Iranian monarchists still blame him for the fall of the Shah, or for mistreating the Shah, after he fell. Carter's inability to free U.S. embassy staff taken hostage by Ayatollah Khomeini's new regime cost him re-election in 1980. He still says his failure to rescue the hostages is his biggest regret. Carter is 90 now. Earlier this month, he announced that he will undergo treatment for cancer. Most people are wishing him well, but they're also talking about his legacy. So this week, I'm going to look at the big decisions Jimmy Carter made about Iran. Jimmy Carter came into office in 1977, having made his name as the Democratic governor of Georgia. He was regarded as something of an outsider, in part because of his focus on human rights. Inside Iran, the political opposition noticed him before he became president. Here's Mansour Farhang. He's a professor of international relations at Bennington College. But after the revolution, he became Iran's ambassador to the UN. It's very interesting that before actually coming to office during his campaign, for the first time in American presidential election, he focused on the importance of human rights as a dimension in American in foreign policy. Uh, it was a response to public opinion and the atmosphere created by the anti-war movement, anti-Vietnam war movement. So his campaign, and after he came to office even during his inaugural, this emphasis on human rights had an influence on Iranian dissident movement, even within prison. I remember even Rafsanjani talking to me when I was in Iran uh, during the first year of the revolution, saying that how important President Carter's defense of human rights and promotion of human rights influenced Iranian authorities to be somewhat less repressive, to be somewhat conciliatory toward dissident elements in Iran. Of course, the Shah took notice as well. Here's Mehrdad Khonsari. He worked as a diplomat under the Shah's government. Well, within the Shah's government, uh, I think that many of the senior officials led by the Shah himself were uh, cognizant of the fact that human rights had been mentioned in the course of the presidential campaign. And I think that they sort of saw that as something that the United States might want to be critical of in its relations with Iran. They gave it, in my view, a far greater credence in U.S.-Iran relations than I think the Carter administration intended. And they sort of did not understand that this strategy was aimed primarily at the Soviet Union rather than Iran. But they took that, and in order to avoid further criticism, they, in essence, tried to restrict some of their more, you might say, aggressive behavior within the country and within the security establishment which some people believe may have resulted in things, you might say, uh, getting out of hand. Meanwhile, the U.S. foreign policy establishment still saw the Shah as America's most important ally in the Persian Gulf. Here's Gary Sick. He served on the U.S. National Security Council under Presidents Ford and Carter. 
basically, uh, and I think contrary to popular opinion, he accepted the fact that the United States had developed a very, very close relationship with Iran, that Iran, in fact, was uh, deputized to defend U.S. interests in the region. Uh, this had been done by Nixon and Kissinger, and I think he accepted that, but he did think, and I think this was very obvious, that Iran could stand some improvement in the way it dealt with human rights and other issues. And he made that clear to the Shah in private conversations. But in terms of the strategic relationship, he recognized it as being critical, and he attempted to uh, actually underwrite the Shah and to keep him there. In 1977, Carter visited Iran on New Year's Eve. Toasting the Shah at a state dinner, he called Iran, quote, an island of stability in a troubled region. But in 1978, a series of mass protests and bloody retaliations by the Shah's forces began to destabilize the Shah's regime. In September, soldiers massacred demonstrators in Jale Square. The incident became known as Black Friday and united opposition to the Shah. During the Shiite Ashura festival in December, millions of demonstrators filled the streets Strikes paralyzed the country, and the Shah began to wobble. Carter was slow to realize how quickly the situation was escalating. He took for granted what a lot of people took for granted at that point, and that is that the Shah was an experienced statesman. He had been on the throne for many years. He had been through other crises, and that basically he could handle this uh, situation. And by the time everybody realized, including the Shah, that it was pretty much out of control, it was really too late to do anything about it. In January 1979, Carter sent an American general, Robert Heiser, to try to hold the Iranian military together. The mission failed. About a week later, the Shah fled Iran. In February, Ayatollah Khomeini returned from exile. The Shah went first to Egypt, then to Morocco, the Bahamas, and Mexico. And he was not well. He was dying of cancer. He wanted to enter the U.S. for treatment. Carter feared the consequences. Carter had to make an initial decision to let the Shah into the country. And that was very, very uh, difficult and obviously a very uh, potentially meaningful decision. Uh, he was advised by his closest advisors, all of the people around him, Brzezinski, Vance, uh, uh, Mondale, uh, Hamilton, Jordan, etc., all the people in the high councils of the government met with him and argued that the Shah should be permitted to come into the country. Uh, Cy Vance, the Secretary of State, was, the, was, was slow in coming to that opinion, but finally did. And so Carter was surrounded by his entire most trusted staff, all of whom unanimously said that he should let the Shah into the country. And at that point, Carter looked around the room at all of his people and said, okay, I hear what you're saying, but he said, what are you going to tell me when they take our people hostage in Iran? And as everyone knows, that's exactly what happened. The Shah entered the U.S. in October 1979, and in November, students supporting Khomeini took over the U.S. Embassy in Tehran. But at first, Carter underestimated the severity of the incident. Carter, I think, like all of us, believed that this was a, a political act that was tested as a gesture, a kind of sit-in, which was very common in American colleges in the 60s and 70s, 
simply go in, you make a dramatic gesture, you take over the administration building, in this case the embassy, and you sit there uh, and get maximum publicity, and then some people say, okay, that's enough, but you now let's leave, you make your point. And I think most people anticipated that this would be a matter of a few days, maybe a week or two weeks at the most. What nobody anticipated, uh, at least in the West, but also even in Iran, was that the government, instead of going and saying to them, okay, fellas, now it's time to, to get out of the embassy, actually joined them and basically gave them the job of, of running the place. The uh, students who had and also anticipated that this would be a short-term thing, where they would come in, uh, take over, uh, make their political statement, and then leave, suddenly found themselves running a prison where they had over 50 prisoners. Uh, they had to feed and clothe them. They had to take care of them day by day. They turned into jailers. And they were completely unprepared for that, uh, but they gradually fell into that job and went on with it for you know 444 days. As the crisis deepened, Carter applied pressure on Iran through the World Court and the UN to get the hostages out. He imposed sanctions and threatened to blockade Iran's ports. He also asked his administration to find another country to host the Shah. Here's Mansour Farhang on how Carter's decisions looked inside Iran. My judgment is that with the best of intentions, President Carter made two decisions that were immensely helpful to the Islamists in Iran because they used the hostage-taking as an instrument of eliminating the liberals and the left from the revolutionary movement, and they used it very effectively. They literally stole the issue from the left, and uh, they generated a great deal of support you know, in the country because of hostility and propaganda and, and all that, that, the history of U.S.-Iranian relations and all that. The first time his mistake was to permit, to permit the Shah to come to the United States. But the second mistake, which was even worse with respect to, was to kick him out. <laughs> By kicking him out, he projected the kind of weakness that Khomeini used it. And then from then on, the slogan in Iran became, Carter has to go. Carter Bayad Beravat. Farhang also thinks Carter's sanguine view of religion caused him to misread Khomeini. Carter was deeply religious. And his religion was a kind of the liberal type of Christianity, the Unitarianism of, of, of Christianity. And so he was, he was faithful to his religious you know, values from a very progressive and peaceful perspective all his life. So he had a positive view of the religious motives of Ayatollah Khomeini. Carter was definitely, in the beginning, he did not see the dark side of Khomeini. He saw Khomeini as a religious man, as a spiritual man, and assumed that it would be able to negotiate with him. This was his line of thinking when he decided to kick the Shah out of the United States. So he turned out to be wrong, but he was not the only one who turned out to be wrong about Khomeini. When Carter ran out of ways to negotiate with Khomeini, he decided to launch a military operation to rescue the hostages. In August 1980, he ordered Operation Eagle Claw, an attempt by U.S. Special Forces, to free the hostages and fly them out of Iran with helicopters. The mission ended with an explosive helicopter crash in a sandstorm in Iran's eastern desert, which killed eight American servicemen. Khomeini gloated over Carter's humiliation, saying that the sandstorm had been sent by God. 
For Carter, the political consequences were devastating. Here's Mehrdad Khonsari. The failure of that mission essentially sealed his fate. And it showed to many people in the third world that it's not just people in the West or in the U.S. who determine who the leaders of a country in a, in, in a developing country can be, but a third world leader like Khomeini can decide the fate of the American people as well. And that came out in a sort of a decisive manner that Khomeini could, in fact, determine who would be the next president of the United States. Later that year, Carter lost the election to Ronald Reagan. I asked Gary Sick how Iran affected Carter's legacy. I think it was dominant. Uh, A lot of people look back on the uh, Carter presidency uh, incorrectly, I believe, and all they remember is the inability to get the hostages out, the, the failure of the rescue mission, and the sense of kind of helplessness. And, you know, I can understand why people adopt that view, but I also think that that is a, that is not an accurate representation of Carter's record, actually, in office. Uh, Carter accomplished a great many things, including the, especially the, the Camp David Accords, which actually transformed the politics of the Middle East, and he did a number of other major things, both domestically and in foreign policy, which were dramatic. He worked with the Russians. He uh, set the ground, basically, for what was later going to be the uh, fall of the Soviet empire, and so forth. There were a whole series of things that he did, which some of which didn't, uh, did not happen on his watch, but happened later. But he had laid the groundwork for it. And I think, in time, uh, Carter is going to get credit for this. So how do Iranians remember Carter? Some monarchists will never forgive him for what they see as his poor treatment of the Shah or his willingness to let the revolution happen. Some of them even celebrated news of his illness. Here's Mehrdad Ghonsari. Uh, I was very sad to hear that, you know, that he was suffering and that he, he will probably die very soon. And I was disgusted at the uh, approach that some Iranians had on Facebook and social media in expressing joy in the sense that it is because they blame him for what happened to Iran or what happened to the Shah in those days. And I I felt that the kind of reaction which I saw uh, on Facebook when his name came up, you know, in in recent weeks was totally uh, obnoxious and totally unacceptable, you know, this kind of behavior, and, and it really made me sick. Leading figures in the Islamic Republic condemn him for different reasons. Here's Mansour Farhang. The Iranian regime, they have a very people like Rafsanjani and Khamenei, and they have a completely hypocritical, dishonest view of Carter. In private, they know that Carter's defense of human rights was immensely helpful to them in the beginning, but in public, they demonize him. And it's not hard to see from those answers that not much has changed in the past 35 years. Here's Gary Sick. There's been really no real evolution or change. I think the Iranian public had a view of Carter uh, during this period, which was not a positive view. But at the same time, they haven't thought about it very much. I mean, people in Iran don't go around wondering, what about 
Americans in this country, uh, expatriates, uh, do in fact think about that a lot because they've, they are Americans and they are aware of the role of the United States and they feel, I think incorrectly, that, uh, that Jimmy Carter was basically responsible for all of the terrible things that happened to them. Uh, in Iran, you know, the, the, the media doesn't dwell on these issues. They have a they have an annual uh, celebration of the takeover of the U.S. Embassy, which is they bring people in by bus, they stand outside the embassy, they shout and, and shout slogans for a while, then they go home. And that's about it. The, uh, the Iranian public, for the most part, the Iranians that I talk to are scarcely, they just don't think about these things very much. So the, the hostage crisis is a huge issue in American politics, and I think correctly so. I think it was a major uh, catastrophe, basically, for the United States, um, which actually was perceived that way in Iran. But in Iran, they just said, let's move on, and they don't think about that very much. So in my view, I mean, I, I don't think people in Iran necessarily love Jimmy Carter, nor do I think they necessarily hate him, but they have a view that is created by what by the events of the time and the propaganda of the time, and that really hasn't changed. These days, Carter is still thinking about Iran. Back in July, he hailed the nuclear deal between Iran and the U.S. as, quote, a major step in the right direction. But at the press conference where he announced his illness, a reporter asked him if there was anything he wished he had done differently as president. He said he wished he had sent one more helicopter to rescue the hostages. That's all from Iran's Weekly Wire. If you want to find out more about Iran today, you can join us on Twitter or Facebook or visit iranwire.com. <laughs>